second reading from God's word. It's a sobering word. It's um, We're following along in our series in Romans, and we are at the beginning of this section of 9 through 11, uh, chapters 9 through 11, where Paul's unfolding something quite complicated and uh, um, very theological, according to his training as a as a religious professional and an exegete of scripture, um, he teaches us now. So let us enter into um, the kind of the mindset of openness and learning from Brother Paul. Uh, the second reading is from Romans 9, verses 6 through 13. Hear the word of God. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, our rock and our redeemer, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God's word declares this, and in our experience with God, we know it to be true. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, declares the Lord. Last week, Dan spoke about the Apostle Paul's unceasing anguish over his brothers, according to the flesh, the people of Israel, to whom had been given as a sacred trust all the benefits of being chosen and loved by God through his great covenants, his promises, and his presence amongst them. Why were they not all streaming into the fellowship of faith in Jesus the Messiah, the fulfillment of their ancient calling? This was a question that was in the community Dan called us to consider this in a personal way last week. He said, if you have unsaved people in your family, I pray that you, like Paul, will have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in your heart for them. Heaven and hell, that's what's at stake. Infinite bliss on one hand and infinite terror on the other. How can we rest at night, he said, if we know that there are people, perhaps people whom we love, who are dancing on the precipice. And that is correct. Certainly those words resonate in my heart. God has no spiritual grandchildren. We may be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but we must still be born again. 
We may do all we can to bring up our children or witness to our parents or pray that our dear friends can come into the faith, but only God can do this. And you can rightfully wonder whether or not it will come to pass, right? Especially when you sit down to ponder a passage like today's scripture lesson. So to remind you of the historical setting, somewhere between 41 and 54 AD, Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome, including both the Jewish Christians and non-Christian Jews who were difficult to tell apart at the time, And they were often involved in troublesome dust-ups with each other because of disputes about the faith. So they were all expelled for a few years for disturbing disturbing to the peace. So by the time Paul writes, they had returned. And now there are both Gentile and Jewish believers in the Roman church. But the Gentile believers seem to have come into the majority. And they are outnumbering the Jewish believers, it seems, and apparently with an attitude of superiority, because perhaps while their Jewish component of believers were out, and most of Paul filled in the top levels of leadership. And most of Paul's kinsmen after the flesh seemed to want to kill him for the theology of who's in, who's out, and why and how. And so Paul's arguments of Romans chapters 9 through 11 speak into this context, but as he unfolds his thoughts, they actually reach far beyond this time, past our time, and into the times about which we do not yet know nor fully understand. As Pastor Dan said last week, in Romans 9 through 11, Paul takes on a very serious and complicated question about the relationship between Israel and the church, between Jews and Christians and in fact, between Christ and the world. As we begin, Paul is making a case for God, for God's mercy, God's purpose, and God's promise. This discourse, 9 through 11, is arranged around a series of rhetorical questions. In this case, Paul needs to make for God. What of God's purposes and promises to Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when it seems perhaps that both God and Israel have abandoned these covenants, what of them? What are we to think? Theologian R.C. Sproul notes at the beginning of his commentary, Romans 9 through 11 is as full of problems as a hedgehog is full of prickles. The hedgehog will roll itself up into a prickly ball and defy a closer look at risk of injury. Paul's exposition here may seem harsh to us at times, but through it all we must look for and place our trust in the pervasive lifeline of God's mercy, without which there would be no promise at all and no purpose other than condemnation. Right? So as a means of better anchoring us into this prickly hedgehog, I'm going to simply run through all the questions that Paul will cause us to consider in the upcoming weeks or months. There are questions that naturally arise, and the alarm bells, if you will, that Paul knew would be ringing as his hearers wrestled to connect with the old covenant and the new, the nation Israel with the Gentile nations, and those dearly beloved who are in the church with those who are not. So here goes. First question, has has God's word failed? Then, is God unjust? Then, if it is true that God sovereignly elects some for eternal life and others not, 
then why does God still blame us? For who can resist his will? And then what if God chose to bear with objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known? Paul doesn't actually say that God did do this, but he invites his audience to consider what God has the right to do. So the question ultimately is, what does God have a right to do? Then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it by faith, while Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it? Why? Then Paul asks, did they not hear? Did they not understand? Did God reject his people? And finally, and very importantly, to every redeemed and unredeemed sinner in the world, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And then he ends the section with with a word of praise, with a doxology. Now that's the whole flow. That's 9 through 11. Today we're going to look at those first eight verses of Paul's argument, verses 6 through 13, which begin, in essence, with this question. Since so many of God's covenant people, Israel, do not believe in Jesus, does this mean that God's word to them has fallen? Has God's word of promise failed? Is God's word, which never returns void but always accomplishes its purpose, has that word, in fact, failed to powerfully and sovereignly create what God set out to create, namely, a people for himself, who would be a lasting inheritance given in love to his only son, the Messianic King? If you listen, you can hear. You can begin to understand how important this question is to not only for the nation Israel, but for all who seek God from every nation and for us. Because you know this, we are resting on these promises. So has has God's word fallen? Has it failed, we ask? Has God been unable to keep the covenant that he made with himself in the presence of Abraham? Or that covenant, in fact, which God made with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after the fall? that the offspring of the woman, the seed who is Christ, would in time crush the head of the serpent, did God's promise of redemption fail? Was his relationship with Israel the weak link that broke the chain? And must we believe that God's word has failed because of what we see when we open our eyes and look around after 2,000 years of redemptive history? Where is he now? So Paul says, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now here is Paul beginning to develop an idea that there are two different expressions of Israel as God's chosen people, and that there always have been. There has been since the time of Abraham the ethnic identity of the nation to whom God gave stewardship over the adoption of sons, the divine glory, the covenant, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and the human ancestry of Christ, as we heard last week. Then there have been those of whom Jesus said, the time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. These were a different expression of Israel. He was actually speaking to a Samaritan. 
John's gospel records a conversation between Jesus and some of the Jews who had believed in him. He said, if you hold to my teaching, then you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered, we are Abraham's descendants, and we have always been free. So how can you say that we will be set free? To which he replied, I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. If you would were Abraham's children, then you would do the things that Abraham did. They protested, the only father we have is God himself. This escalated rapidly. Jesus called them the children of the devil and furthermore told them, the reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Well, how could that be? They were sons of Israel of Abraham, of God, according to their earthly understanding, but not who all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul then makes the argument that this has always been a part of God's design. For example, Father Abraham, he had a lot of sons because after Sarah died, he married his concubine, Keturah, and she bore him six sons. But Abraham's firstborn son was with Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian handmaid, that was Ishmael. Oh, that Ishmael might live under your promise, Abraham prayed to God. But that was not God's plan. And God said, no. But about this time next year I shall return, and Sarah shall have a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. Your offspring will be reckoned through Isaac. Isaac would be the son to carry the covenant of blessing that God made with Abraham. So before Isaac was even conceived, he was already chosen to bear God's promise. He was the child who was promised to Abraham and Sarah, quite apart from her natural ability to even bear him for a purpose designed by God, and he was received by faith. Abraham had a lot of sons. This was an unconditional election for a special purpose by a sovereign God. Paul begins to explain And this election was to a people that would carry something much, much more than the blood of Abraham. There is one blood type, that of Jesus, that brings a person into the true Israel of God. Through a calling and a rebirth that is of the spirit and not of the flesh. But Isaac was the one who was chosen out of all the sons of Abraham to carry this promise forward. Continuing, Paul writes, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Here Paul continues to tighten the knot in the case that he's developing. He's spoken of Abraham and Isaac And now he addresses the third great defining patriarch, Jacob. The God of Israel is the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But by what merit did Jacob become the bearer of the name? In the case of Isaac, perhaps it could be said that the other mothers were not as special as Sarah, not the first, not the free, not the racially pure. But that wasn't the point. But here is Isaac and his beloved Rebekah, and these two sons are in the same womb at the same time. They're fraternal twins. Shouldn't the firstborn inherit the promises of his father, as was the custom and the law of his day? But that was not God's sovereign choice. 
When the babies jostled each other inside her womb, Rebecca went to the Lord and prayed for understanding. And God told her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples. One will be stronger than the other and the other will serve the younger. How mysterious. Esau was born first and Jacob came after grasping his heel and was given the name that means he grasps the heel or the supplanter. Later, Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord, and God renamed him Israel, meaning he struggles with God. But before any of that happened, Paul wants us to see, before the twins were born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Why? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Jacob was given his calling, a calling far, far greater than the blessing of his earthly father Isaac. It was the blessing of the fatherhood of God. Through no merit of his own, Jacob was called into the true Israel. As Paul wrote, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation, peace and mercy to all who walk by this rule, even to the Israel of God. Now you see how this hedgehog is not at all optional and we must deal with it. Paul must make these points about God's absolute sovereignty and freedom of choice in his epistle to the Romans because he's been saying all along that salvation is the unmerited gift of God, not through works at all, lest anyone should boast. It is a gift free to us and paid for in the blood of God's eternal covenant, of which the earthly covenant is just a shadow and a type. And there's nothing we can do to get it, even if we want to, unless it's given to us by God. And that's the sticky part. You see, there are these words, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now what does that mean, that the God who is love hates Esau, and how can we possibly accept it? Okay, we can understand it as a Hebrew idiom for preference. Jesus himself told us in Luke's words that we cannot be his disciples, Unless we hate our family. And again, through Matthew, Jesus states that anyone who loves his father or mother, his sons or daughters more than me, is not worthy of me. Of course, he follows that with whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You think about idiom and hyperbole here. Jesus wasn't really telling us to hate our family. And yet, Jesus is almighty God. He's not a back pocket God. When he speaks a difficult word to us, we just need to back off, fall down, and worship him. Esau really was a wild and lawless guy, the progenitor of the Edomites who were always getting in Israel's way, and the Edomites are trouble. King Herod was from the Edomites. They're trouble throughout the witness of scripture. Esau despised his birthright, shrugged it off as unimportant, And we are warned in Hebrews, see to it that no one is godless like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could find no ground for repentance, though he sought the blessing with tears. That is a very frightening statement to me. He could find no ground for repentance, though he sought the blessing with tears. The entire prophecy of Obadiah is devoted to foretelling the eventual destruction of the Edomites 
And Malachi, the final prophetic book in the Old Testament, is where we find these chilling words, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, said the Lord, but you ask, have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Yes. This story is told of someone who said to Charles Spurgeon as he was preaching on this topic, I cannot understand why God should say he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. And that is, that is really the point of the matter. The Reverend William Newell, a gifted preacher and expositor of the last century, had a reverence for God that we could stand to cultivate more fully today. He said about Romans 9.13 that we must allow God to retreat into his own sovereignty to act as he will, to retreat into his own sovereignty as we saw in his words about Esau, as we see in his words to Job. Here in Romans 9.6-13, Paul is just beginning to open up his theology of election of predestination. It hits home hard for us, as it did for Paul, in that we desperately want everyone that we love to be found by God and not lost. And the more we love God, the more our circle of those whom we love will expand. Our good brother Dan Morrison will tackle it with us in the coming months, and we will ask God to help us. But I don't believe this kind of mystery should ever become for us a cut-and-dried smugness about our understanding, God's great mysteries of his own counsel. If something is cut and dried, it is no longer growing, no longer alive. And the word of God is very alive. It is important in biblical theology to hold the mysteries of God both lightly and reverently. Why is someone saved? Why is someone lost? Why here? Why now? How long? There are threads we cannot tie up without inadvertently knotting them into our own image. But someone said, It is only those who live by faith who can acknowledge the intrinsic rightness of the ways of God ahead of time, well in advance of the last day, and the satisfying clarity it will afford to those who have longed for it. And no doubt, this long wait of leaning hard on the hidden God is often accompanied by desperate tears, tears which are not opposed to unwavering trust in his faithfulness, nor is such godly weeping to be despised by any who tread the same paths. Faith means trusting in advance, what will only make sense in reverse. C.S. Lewis wrote, there's a difficulty about disagreeing with God. He is the source from which all your reasoning power comes. You could not be right and he wrong any more than a stream can rise higher than its own source. When you're arguing against him, you are arguing against the very power that makes you able to argue at all. It is cutting off the branch you are sitting on. 
First Peter 5, 6 through 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Surely if God is for us, and who can be against us, then why would God ignore us in our prayers or treat our deep sorrow and anguish with indifference? The Lord, the Lord God, is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. That is half of what God proclaimed to Moses on Mount Sinai when he gave the law, and the other half was terrifying. But by the blood of the covenant, the Lord God, who is rich in mercy, can put our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. They will never meet. In making this way out of no way available to those fallen creatures in this fallen creation, God is already rich in mercy, and in God's mercy are promise and purpose. How often do we take time to look down the years of an experience to see what has come of it? About four years after sending his epistle to the Romans, Paul finally arrived in Rome as a prisoner. He didn't expect to go that way, but that was the way that he had to come in order to escape being killed by the Jewish contingent in Jerusalem. Within a few days, as he always did, Paul called together the Jewish leaders in Rome to present his case for Jesus Christ to them, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, which he explained from Moses to the prophets straight away through the scriptures. They were interested and willing to hear Paul's views. This exchange is recorded in Acts 28. Some of them were convinced by what he said, while others would not believe, and they argued about it. Just like today, just like any community will find today, anywhere. Paul would have expected this, although it was painful to him for the sake of the nation. He would not want that any should perish, but that all be brought to repentance. Nevertheless, his final words to them were true to that vision of the prophet Isaiah, for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. He said to them, he quoted to them, And as he turned away, he said, Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. So Paul threw himself entirely into the Gentile mission through his imprisonment in Rome. But I'm sure he did not ever stop praying and agonizing to God for the salvation of his tribe. Meanwhile, the other apostles continued to work among the Jews and the others, calling on God's mercy and praying for the elect out of every nation that their eyes should be opened and their ears unstopped through the grace of Christ and that as many as had ears to hear would turn and be healed. And that, my dear friends, is how every one of us came to be here today. And now we need to give back, for we have Christ's commission to pass it on my sisters and my brothers, sowing the Father's seed generously into the field of the world 
We must pass it on, and we must keep on, and we must keep on keeping on, sowing to the purpose and the promise of God and leaning heavily upon his mercy. We will not understand it fully today, but the day will come when we do understand, and we will see, and we will fully know, even as we are fully known, and our tears will all be wiped away. This is the good news. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, holy and righteous, we love you, and we, because you are opening our eyes to the truth, bow before you in humility, Lord, and in some trepidation, because we want to be good children, and we look inside of ourselves, and we can't find it there. And so we need to open and tune in to your Holy Spirit and to the Spirit speaking through the word and to one another in encouragement, in holding forth the word of life. We need to become more like you. We need to become knitted into your body. We need to understand how grateful we must be that you have called us that you're speaking to us, that your love is over us, that everlasting love is over us, that mercy and that grace. And we just pray, Lord, that we might be able to extend what you've given us to as many as possible in as deep and as real a way as we possibly can. For thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. Amen.